Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at FNEP. Today is December 22nd, 2022, and I'm delighted to be here with Jihad Abu Salim, who is also a non-resident fellow at FNEP. Jihad is also the Educational and Policy Coordinator of the Palestine Activism Program at the American Friends Service Committee, and is completing his PhD in the in the history in history and Hebrew and Judaic Studies Joint Program at New York University. His research focuses on Arab and Palestinian intellectual discourse on Zionism, anti-Semitism, and the plight of the Jewish people in Europe between 1870 and 1948. Uh, Jihad, thank you so much for taking the time to do this conversation. Thank you for having me, Peter. So the reason I think this conversation is so important is there is um, a a lot of conversation in the United States about anti-Semitism recently. um, And much of that conversation intersects with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so it often involves a set of claims about Palestinians uh, and their relationship to anti-Semitism, and yet Palestinians are rarely part of that conversation. So the conversation is often about them, but not with them, which uh, I think is is often deeply, deeply problematic and leads to people making a set of assertions um, that I think are just uh, empirically often untrue and 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 deeply morally problematic. And um, you have actually done a lot of academic research on the question of how Palestinian intellectuals historically have thought about the question of anti-Semitism, of anti-Jewish bigotry. And so I'd love to just ask you to talk a little bit about some of the some of the ideas, some of the the, the currents in Palestinian thought um, that that you found particularly interesting in the course of this research. Um, of course, and again, thank you so much for uh, hosting me and for having this important conversation. Um, uh, the, the Arab and Palestinian engagements with uh, the question of anti-Semitism, uh, the quote-unquote Jewish question, um, and the uh, oppression and uh, multiple challenges that Jewish communities uh, faced in Europe throughout the 19th and 20th centuries uh, are topics that have been on the radar of uh, Arab and Palestinian intellectuals throughout the past 200 years, uh, especially during uh, the era that we call the Nahda or the Arab Nahda or the Arab Renaissance, which uh, starts in the mid 19th 19th century, uh, the Arab world witnesses, a revival uh, of the press, uh, publications, uh, engagement with ideas coming from Europe, um, uh, and uh, and commentary on worldwide events uh, in these nascent journals and newspapers that uh, dedicated its pages to talk about political, social, scientific issues, and so on and so forth. So the Nahda was similar to the Haskalah in in certain ways. Um, And as early as 1869, uh, this is in in the very early stages of the Nahda, you you find uh, the the engagements with this this discourse of European anti-Semitism that is, packaged and repackaged in in its modern forms and making its way into the Arab world. So for example, 
And this is where my research starts in 1869, where um, in, in Beirut, uh, this book, uh, a booklet actually, a small book published uh, by an anonymous author uh, promoting the accusation of blood libel. And uh, the pioneers of the Arab Nahda, uh, Butrus al-Bustani and his son Salim al-Bustani and other intellectuals and, uh, and, and leaders, they, they waged this powerful campaign asking Ottoman authorities to uh, confiscate this book. Um, and to search for the author and to uh, basically, uh, you know, end the existence of this of this piece of literature that they found disgusting and uh, and ridiculous, you know, and and they published in, in multiple journals, uh, multiple uh, articles, and. Uh, uh, engaging with this text, refuting its content, refuting the accusation of, uh, of the blood libel, and, uh, and talking about Jews in, uh, in positive terms, um, and emphasizing that Jews uh, have an important place in, in their vision for um, an equal society um, that is rooted in um, their early ideas of citizenship, what equal citizenship looked like um, uh, based on uh, equality between members of different faiths, religions, um, and so on and so forth. Another example from the late 19th century was um, when uh, Al-Muqtataf journal paid attention to uh, a debate that was taking place between a notorious Canadian-British anti-Semite uh, whose name was Goldwyn Smith, who, uh, whose name is still, by the way, on uh, one of Cornell University's main buildings. And uh, there was a campaign a few years ago uh, by some of Cornell's Jewish uh, alumni asking to remove his name from, from the university. Uh, Goldwyn Smith was obsessed with Jews. Uh, he would write these articles, you know, uh, saying all sorts of nasty things about Jews. Um, and uh, the person who would become uh, one of uh, Britain's uh, chief rabbis, uh, whose name was uh, uh, Rabbi Herman Adler, um, in, responded to Goldwyn Smith. And, and the Arab press picked this debate and sided with Rabbi Herman Adler and highlighted how the Jews were defending themselves against these accusations. So in the early Nahda era, we have all of these examples. And then, you know, moving into the early 20th century, of course, Palestinian intellectuals and thinkers were second and third generations of, of the Nahda were influenced by this thought. Uh, they come from this tradition uh, that was uh, and you know, uh, generations that were excited about the European Enlightenment, about you know, uh, excited about scientific advancement and progress, uh, uh, humanism, universal ideas, um, and Palestinian intellectuals like other Arab intellectuals were you know talked also about these questions now in in different contexts. Right, they have Zionism being introduced as this powerful force in the politics of the region. Um, and at the same time, 
you know, there, there were events such as uh, World War II, which I can talk about in detail later on. So we have all these examples of how the how Palestinian intellectuals engaged with ideas such as Nazism, fascism, um, and how they and how they basically made the case against those ideologies. So there are plenty of examples. So let, maybe we should talk about the about Palestinian reactions to um, to Nazism and the Holocaust. I think you know the one thing that many. Uh, Jews will will know uh, is uh, is the Mufti, uh, you know, uh, Haj, I mean Al Husseini meeting meeting with 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 Hitler, and so so I, I wonder if you can talk about that, but also put that in the larger context of the of the variety of different Palestinian reactions to to Nazism. Of course, um, a lot of people, a lot of scholars have written about that moment, that particular moment uh, of when Muhammad Amin al-Husseini made that calculation, met with Hitler. Um, I'm not going to comment on Netanyahu's accusations that, uh, you know, uh, Hitler was so inclusive that he gave Muhammad Amin al-Husseini the opportunity to share ideas with him about <laughs> how to proceed um, with, uh, with his evil plans. But, uh, but I think one of, one of the problems um, I face as a Palestinian historian as someone who does this research is that um, the, the assumption that Muhammad Amin al-Husseini was this, that the Palestinian people were this massive tribe and Muhammad Amin al-Husseini basically represented every Palestinian in, in, in his decision. Um, although he was in a position that the British created, Palestine didn't have a mufti before the mandate. Um, and uh, he made, that calculation during the war. Uh, and of course, a lot of Palestinian scholars and historians and Arab scholars and historians, you know, uh, uh, condemn that and, and talk about it in, in, in that context of, you know, early years of the war, uh, not fully grasping the, the scale and intensity of what the Nazis were, were doing. And of course, at the end of the day, you know, for me as a Palestinian, um, I'm looking at a diverse society, um, a society that had a rich uh, political atmosphere um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and a variety of, of groups, uh, of schools of thought, uh, of political parties. Uh, some were uh, leftists or communists, others were liberals, nationalists, others were you know, um, Islamists and and the lines, the, the gray areas between these different schools of thoughts and backgrounds were uh, very blurry. Um, and there were different kinds of positions that Palestinians adopted during the war, like any other society around the world. So while there were people who, you know, unfortunately were excited about the what was happening in in Europe, or I wouldn't say excited. I would say they 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 use the logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There were also Palestinian intellectuals and leaders who condemned uh, Nazism, um, who condemned fascism, even during the early stages of the war. And uh, I think one of the most important books that were published during the early stages of the war, while the Nazis were being were achieving victories uh, on the European front. 
um, was a book uh, called Islam and Nazism. Do they agree? By a Palestinian author uh, uh, who was called Muhammad Najati Sidqi. And Muhammad Najati Sidqi is a fascinating character because he was um, uh, a key leader in the Palestinian Communist Party. Uh, he was assigned with the task of Arabizing the party and introducing it to Palestine's Arab population, uh, making it accessible to the population. Uh, he went to Spain to fight against uh, fascism, uh, and he played an important role in producing anti-fascist uh, propaganda uh, during the Spanish Civil War to call upon uh, soldiers from North African origins to uh, who were recruited uh, by fascists to abandon the fascist cause. And then he returns to Palestine around the late 30s, um, returns to the Arab world and publishes this book in Beirut, basically making a uh, moral philosophical uh, case against the Nazi ideology. Uh, so he's not really concerned with, you know, like uh, diplomacy or whether World War II will be harmful for Palestinians or not, uh, regardless of what kind of geopolitical considerations will come out of it. He was concerned with um, the, the, the immorality of the Nazi ideology and how it opposes what he calls Arab and Islamic values. He, although he was, you know, a, a communist, uh, he still viewed himself as part of this Islamic Arab civilization with its sets of values and traditions and philosophies that he saw himself as someone who inherits that and he saw Arabs and Palestinians as people who inherit that. So he goes on uh, and makes the case against Nazi ideology, condemns tyranny, condemns the, the, the solution of the individual in the sea of fascism uh, in favor of worshiping a tyrant, um, and, uh, and, and talks a little bit in his book about um, the, I think, you know, people talk about Orientalism, Edward Said's book as one of the early uh, works that uh, challenged um, the use of education and academia and scholarship and media in, 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 in uh, enforcing uh, Western dominance. But Muhammad Najati Sudqi also talks about what German institutions were um, working to disseminate Nazi propaganda in the Arab world. And, uh, and he basically you know, goes to the Quran and to the Hadith, the, tra the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. And he highlights all verses and all you know, sayings by the Prophet that uh, basically show that Nazism is, is an evil ideology that Arabs and Muslims shouldn't adopt. Another example was uh, the work of the Palestine Broadcasting Service which was headed by uh, uh, a guy named Ajaj Nwaihad, who uh, uh, basically dedicated the, the Palestine Broadcasting Service to disseminate uh, pro-allied uh, uh, information during the war. And, uh, and I think one of the most important interviews that were, uh, that were held by the organization that were uh, an interview that was then the transcript of it was published in the Palestinian press multiple times was an interview with a with an Egyptian uh, poet and writer named Abdul Qadir al-Mazini who uh, basically um, uh, also makes the case uh, against uh, Nazi and fascist ideologies and 
uh, and highlights this idea that you know our traditions as Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians and Egyptians do not agree with with these ideologies. We are we come from traditions that value hospitality and generosity and and uh, and aiding the weak and uh, and and assisting the vulnerable. And what is happening in Germany and Italy is something that does not agree with us civilizationally. And we're more like the Anglo-Saxon. He, he, he tried to you know, highlight that part. Um, uh, so I think there are plenty of examples um, that uh, of, of engagement with, uh, with these ideologies, but unfortunately they're not highlighted now. And uh, one, one of the ironies uh, that um, I have uh, you know, came across in my work is that um, due to the Nakba of 1948, Palestinians lost touch with this tradition, with this intellectual tradition, because we lost our newspapers. Now they're finally, some of them are digitized by the Israel National Library. Um, and uh, the Palestinian library was looted and destroyed during 1948. So uh, uh, there is a lot of important work that we need to reclaim and highlight. So I'm curious how, um... Palestinian intellectuals thought about the relationship between anti-Semitism and Zionism. Obviously, if you look at Zionist thinkers or Pinsker, Herzl, th there's an intimate relationship between, for them, between anti-Semitism and Zionism. The argument is, well, the Jews are not going to be safe in Europe. Therefore, Jews need a country of their own. And the only place that most Jews really will want a country of their own is going to be, uh, is going to be what Jews call Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. So therefore, Zion, uh, political Zionism. Um, and I'm curious, as Palestinian intellectuals looked at this relationship between anti-Semitism, the way anti-Semitism becomes fuel for Zionism, how they thought about the interactions and, and what alternatives they would they were they suggested to this to this problem. This is an important question. Um, I think I will mention two examples from two different uh, eras. Um, in, in 1919, uh, a group of Palestinian intellectuals formed uh, an organization in New York called the Palestine Anti-Zionism Society, and they, uh, they wanted to uh, basically contact the big powers, mainly the British, during the peace conference following the end of World War I, um, and, uh, and uh, and promote the idea of uh, greater Syrian independence. Um, for those who are not familiar with this concept, after the First World War, uh, one of the ideas that were very popular for the fate of the of the region was the establishment of a uh, of a larger Syria, independent larger Syria, in, including what is today Palestine, Israel, Syria, and Lebanon, Jordan, and. Uh, they, they published um, a book, uh, an anthology uh, that uh, included writings by, uh, you know, well-known historians and activists and scholars, in, including Philip Hutti and uh, Khalil Totah and others, uh, to talk about the future of Palestine. Basically, the, the title of the anthology was The Reconstruction of Palestine. Um, and... One of those authors talks about this. His name is uh, uh, Habib Katiba. He was Syrian from the city of Yabrud, uh, studied uh, at Harvard, and lived between Boston and New York. 
And he basically says, um, in short, that uh, gathering Jews in Palestine will not solve the, the, the Jewish question, will not solve anti-Semitism. Because he, he, he looked at this issue in a, in a broader way, um, in terms of number one, you know, the, the roots of hatred against Jews in Europe, that combining them in a country will not make them safe so long as this hatred continues. And at the same time, this is an inhabited country. There are people there. So by bringing Jews into Palestine and establishing a state for them, he, which he called then a, king, a new kingdom of Israel in an already inhabited land, um, and denying will, will result, and I'm talking about some, a text that was written in 1919, um, bringing those people and will, call, will result in denying the native population, their sovereignty, their rights, and their ability to live with freedom and dignity on their own land. And this will cause another clash. So for them, they, they, were, they rejected that idea in, on basis of these two um, notions that we need to look at anti-Semitism and the Jewish, the, the Jewish question as part of um, a greater effort to fix the world that we live in. Uh, there is racism, there is colonialism, um, and we also need to, you, and, and, and a question like that cannot be solved by creating another question uh, of denying people their dignity and uh, uh, and independence and sovereignty. Uh, fast forward to 1945, another intellectual from Gaza, his name uh, was Saadi Bseso. Uh, he writes um, a book in which he imagine, in which he talks about and imagines what the future of an Arab independent Palestine will look like. And without further you know, explanation, he basically says, you know, Palestine and Britain need to sign a treaty and uh, partition is a pretty dumb idea and Jews can stay. For him, it wasn't a foreign idea that, you know, we live in a, in a, in a society, in a country where people come from different faiths, especially when it comes to Palestine. This wasn't a foreign concept or, or something that was, uh, uh, you know, out of this world. So I think there were different ways they approached the question of anti-Semitism and its resolution. And, um, and I think, you know, as I said in the beginning, uh, the, the idea that this is a global issue that needs to be solved on a global scale, and then Palestinians shouldn't be the ones who pay the price. I'm interested in the commentary and at the time, and also how you think about the question of the Jews from Arab lands and, and Middle Eastern lands in general, who um, leave their countries, in some cases are forced from their countries in the late 40s into the 50s and go, many of them go to Israel, although some go to other places. So oftentimes when I hear Palestinian discourse, I, I, I often hear Palestinians talk about anti-Semitism as, as fundamentally European, um, uh, as a European pathology. And yet, as you know, many Jews, Jewish, Jewish Zionists tend to say, tend to point to the to the to to the flight of of the Jews, the Mizrahi Jews, as examples of 
of what they claim is the pervasiveness of anti-Semitism in the Arab world. Essentially, if, the, if, if, it, if there wasn't a lot of anti-Semitism in Morocco, Iraq, uh, you know, Egypt, Yemen, et cetera, those Jews would have been able to stay. So I'm wondering how you think about that moment in uh, in the in it makes sense of it within the in terms of the question of of anti-Semitism in the Arab world. Of course, uh, I think uh, the Zionist enterprise uh, and its work towards establishing um, the state of Israel didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, it came to a region that. Uh, that was still figuring out its, its future. Uh, people were still figuring out multiple questions, uh, including um, the question of citizenship. What defines a citizen in Arab society? Um, under whatever visions for national independence uh, that will, will take place, um, there was a question of colonialism and how colonial powers um, utilized and used sectarianism to further its agenda. Uh, there were also questions related to class um, and the place of different religious minorities in these societies. There were also questions related to identity, uh, questions related to religion. And I think one of the, uh, one of the uh, most important issues and that I, that we need to go back and revisit and read about is the question of uh, of of religion the role of religion in in defining vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the question of citizenship and i think uh, scholar osama mapdisi uh, writes uh, uh, he wrote an incredible book about this and he's been writing about questions of sectarianism and, and intercommunal strife but and also attempts towards coexistence. So uh, his latest book, The Age of Coexistence and uh, writing about the ecumenical frame. Uh, so, so Zionism comes into this, this complex scene and says, well, we are going to create a state for, um, for, the, for Jews and it's going to be a Jewish state. And, um, and only, Jewish people are privileged in this state. And it's a state that, you know, despite that it claims to be secular, it derives its symbols, its, uh, its culture, its outlook from, from religion. And, uh, and at the same time, Zionism says that we need to end, we need to end exile. We need to exile is, you know, uh, the whole idea of the ingathering of, of exile and, and, and rejection of the diaspora. Um, so this, this causes a huge problem in, in, this, in this complex scene. And of course, you know, uh, as, as an Arab and as a Palestinian, I, I believe that Jews from Arab and Muslim countries have the right to go back to the countries of, of their origin. But at the same time, Zionism says they don't belong there. And they made Aliyah to their only legitimate homeland. So the, there is an inherent contradiction within Zionism itself. So before, before Zionists come to Palestinians and Arabs and say, you know, let, let's talk about this, I think there is a conversation that needs to happen 
you know, within Zionist circles, they need to decide, do Arab Jews and Jews from Islamic countries belong in these societies or were they there on a temporary exile and then they return to their uh, native homeland? So that's one issue. And then, and I think in 1948 represented a massive rupture for, for all of these processes to configure and reconfigure questions of citizenship and belonging and identity. And it definitely caused um, a lot of tension across sectarian and religious lines uh, that were pretty unfortunate. Um, but you know, if there, there is a campaign tomorrow uh, to advocate for the right of return of Moroccan Jews to Morocco, Algerian Jews to Algeria, Iraqi Jews to Iraq, I'll, I'll support that, that campaign. But at the same time, there are Palestinians who, who are dwelling in refugee camps for 70 years. And, you know, and I don't think it's fair to um, use these examples uh, conveniently to um, assault the, the Palestinian um, right of return, um, given how, you know, important it is for Palestinians, especially because of the difficult conditions that they live in right now. Yes, I think you're making a very important point, which is that, as you know, many, many kind of Israeli government and pro-Israeli government figures, whenever the, the question of Palestinian refugees come up, they want to link it to the question of Arab Jewish refugees. But as you say, if then one responds, as you do, by saying, terrific, everyone should have the right to return to the places they were from, then it actually shows that the whole thing is kind of a ruse, right? Because in fact, of course, that's not the, the you know pro-Israeli government figures are not interested actually in 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 Moroccan and Egyptian and Iraqi Jews being going back. What they're interested in is basically them forfeiting their right to go back, as part of the Palestinian refugees having to forfeit their right to go back. Right. Um, um, one of the issues that I imagine Palestinians have wrestled with um, is the question of what actually is the relationship between Zionism and Judaism or Zionism and Jewish. Ness, right? That it, it's it's a complicated relationship. In some ways, Zionism grows out of Jewishness, but in some ways also represents a repudiation of certain traditional aspects of, of Jewishness. And um, and I'm moving forward to the era of, of the PLO um in the you know in the 60s and then into the 1970s. I know there was a lot of research that was done associated with the PLO that um ab about the question of Jewishness and its relationship with Zionism. Um, and I'm curious about how Palestinian intellectuals and activists thought during that period about, about, about the relationship between these two things. Yeah, I'm, I think one of the most important examples of um, post-48 visions for uh, what life should look like in, uh, in historic Palestine was the one-state manifesto that uh, Fatah um, and other forces within the PLO adopted um, in, in the 60s, early 70s, before they adopted the, uh, the program that would uh, prioritize autonomy on a, on a liberated uh, piece of land uh, of historic Palestine. And that manifesto, it's available in English. People can go read it. One democratic state for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Um, and of course, Palestinian leaders and intellectuals always made, uh, always comment, commented in public forums and the writing that, you know, where Palestinians separate 
between Judaism and Zionism, and we have to distinguish. And whenever there is a writer or um, or a leader who uh, repeats, you know, uh, superficial lines about Jews or Judaism or Zionism, other intellectuals come out and remind them that our conflict are with the political movement, uh, a colonial movement. It's not with the Jewish people. Uh, so I think. And even you know leaders of Islamist movements like Ahmad Yassin, uh, who founded Hamas, uh, he also reiterated that line multiple times. He said, "If a Lebanese occupies Palestine, I'm going to fight him. If if an Egyptian occupies Palestine, I'm going to something like that." So I think there there is this uh, uh, this idea has been pretty. You know, I, I grew up hearing that. Um, and at, at the same time, I think it's important to highlight that Palestinians are asked to be the nicest occupied people in the world. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, for ordinary Palestinians, they, they live under occupation. Um, they live under uh, oppression. Um, every detail of their, of, their, of their lives is complicated and violent and exhausting. And there are symbols that are put in their face every day to remind them of what project is, is taking place in, in their country and whose narrative is the only legitimate narrative in this country, the sole narrative, and whose history is the only history that needs to be highlighted while other histories need to be dismissed. So the Palestinian resentment, Palestinians re resent these symbols, they resent these ideas, they resent the institutions that work on promoting them. And, um, and, and, and they also have to deal with the daily violence um, that is practiced against them. So I think, you know, and so whatever attempts we have towards nuance, um, I think, you know, uh, sometimes, can can it's it can be challenging to to promote this nuance while this violence is being committed in in the name of these symbols and in the name of this narrative and in the name uh, of these ideas that says this is a Jewish state for the Jewish people and only Jewish history Jewish culture Jewish symbols are relevant and the rest doesn't matter so I think I think you know it's it's hard to navigate that let me give you let me tell you one story about how I personally had to deal with this. Uh, I took a, a, a Hebrew course. Um, it was uh, Hebrew for journalism or journalistic writing. And the, the teacher, she, there were two main topics. That uh, she, you took this in, in, back in, in Gaza, where you're from or no, here? In, in the US, in the US. Um, and the teacher was, uh, and I studied Hebrew in Gaza before, so can talk about that. Um, but the teacher was highlighting two topics in her teaching, two kinds of articles and, uh, and readings that we read. One, the first topic was the Holocaust and its legacy. The other topic was German culture, beer fists, everything Germany. So for me, I was new in the US. I, I was, you know, I wasn't really sure like what was going on. So I went to her and I asked her and I, it was an innocent question on my part. I said, so you're teaching us rightly so about the Holocaust and about all these crimes that the Nazis committed in Germany and beyond. And at the same time, you have this 
interesting obsession with German culture and things German. Um, and as someone who comes from the region, you know, like I, I wonder why aren't you teaching things about, you know, like the region in Hebrew. Um, so she, she basically said um, the German the German people did their homework, but the Arabs didn't. And I'm still baffled by the answer, meaning that you know that there there is some sort of an exercise regarding what was done during. World War II that Arabs have to, to atone for. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 pretty fascinating. I mean, I think you're you're making a really important point. It seems to me, it is it seems to me probably inevitable. I mean, if you think about the way that Jews thought about Jews tend thought and still many do talk about Ukrainians or Poles or Latvian Latvians or Lithuanians, right? There's a lot of negative views about those peoples, right? Um, or the way many, some black Americans thought about white Americans or black South Africans thought about white, right? Uh, sometimes not a clear distinction made between, you know, um, a political regime that's, and, and the larger group of people in whose name that regime speaks. And so that can turn into, you know, a, a generalized hostility to that entire national ethnic group. Um, and so on the one hand, one needs to perhaps recognize that that is going to be almost inevitable while also recognizing that it's it's problematic and regrettable. And I I, I would, because you mentioned Yassine, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the first Hamas charter um, uh, um, and its use of the, the protocols of the elders of Zion and other. Do you, how do you explain that particular, especially given what you said about, about Yahmed Yassin, the, the spiritual leader of Hamas, who was making a clear distinction. How does it come that in the first Hamas charter, the two things get conflated? Absolutely. Um, the protocols of elders of Zion were, if I'm not mistaken, were translated after 1948. Um, and they became popular after 1948. Uh, in, in a moment where people were trying to, un, to make sense of defeat uh, and, un, and make sense of what they perceived as uh, this, this Zionist power that doesn't make sense. How the, the transformation of an entire country overnight, turn, the defeat of multiple Arab armies, uh, and the rendering of hundreds of thousands of people refugees who were unable to go home. The, the scale and intensity of that event was unprecedented in the, in the Arab world. And this isn't to justify the dissemination of such you know, literature. Um, and it's ironic because uh, one of the people who uh, translated the protocols of elders of Zion was an arid anti-Nazi, anti-fascist uh, uh, activist during World War II. Uh, and, and I will leave this, it's, it's, a, it's a painful conversation for him to talk about. It's a painful story, I'm trying, I'm, it's still under research. Uh, so this person basically was crossing into West Jerusalem to go, to go home and he was told come back tomorrow and he was never able to go back. Um, so there is this obsession with this literature that emerges after the Nakba, 
Um, and of course, not everyone took it seriously. And fast, fast forward to uh, the 70s and the 80s, the context in which a movement like Hamas emerges in the, the West Bank and Gaza, mainly Gaza. Uh, it is important to look at what cultural life looked like then under a regime of heavy censorship. Uh, magazines, books, pamphlets, uh, political discourse, political conversations, political discussion. There was, there was none of that under Israeli occupation in the West Bank and Gaza in the 70s and 80s. Educational institutions were suffering. Uh, the, the Palestinians were cut off from the rest of the Arab world. And add to that also the post-1967 defeat. So if 48 was a major defeat, think about 67, which also represented a more, a larger defeat in terms of morale because there was this massive pan-Arab project represented by Abdel Nasser um, uh, that was secular, that was uh, promoting, you know, uh, a lot of secular values and education and, um, and so on and so forth. So the, the defeat of that project opens the, the, the way for the dissemination of, of such uh, literature too. Um, there, there, there is an emotional and a, and a psychological, uh, there are psychological and emotional factors behind why people who are cut off from the rest of the world, who don't live in a, in a place with a thriving cultural uh, and literary scene, uh, can resort to such, uh, to such literature. And I think, you know, if we have a time machine and go back to Gaza in the 1980s, people would, I wouldn't say they would understand because of course the incorporation of something ridiculous like the protocols of elders of Zion and the manifesto of a political movement shouldn't make sense. Um, but I think understanding that context um, will, will, will explain why something like that made sense for, for these people. And of course, the charter has been updated. It, it's been changed. And I think they abandoned the protocols of elders of Zion in 2017. Um, so even, you know, so that's another thing. Palestinians um, in their political entities and their political uh, worlds, they're all, they also have the capacity to grow and evolve and change. So I think, you know, we're still, um, people still use the Mufti while dismissing all the other examples of, uh, of Palestinian resistance to anti-Semitism, to Nazism, to fascism. And I think um, the, these obsessions aren't constructive in, in, in making sense of the Palestinian experience and why people make certain choices. But I also believe that they're most of the time are brought up in bad faith. So what's what's the use? What's the what's the benefit of continuing to engage with these uh, with these arguments? Yes, I mean that brings us to the just in the last couple of minutes I, I, to talk about the present moment. I mean, I myself find myself often with a certain ambivalence about the American conversation about anti-Semitism because, on the one hand, I mean, as a, I, I do think there are some worrying things that are happening in American culture that I did not expect. Uh, and certainly as a Jew, I wouldn't never want to be in a position of not taking my own safety seriously. And yet I find that a lot of the conversation about anti-Semitism, when it engages with Israel-Palestine, 
is predicated on the kind of dehumanization of Palestinians or, or kind of predicated on the idea that bigotry against Jews is bad, but bigotry against Palestinians is 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 normal and and uh, and acceptable and 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 invisible because it's simply taken for granted, um, and so it becomes not a fight for Jewish equality, but a, but essentially a defense of Jewish supremacy. Um, and I'm I'm curious for you, where how do you, how would you like to see the conversation about anti-Semitism? integrated into a broader into a broader conversation that also um that um uh, centers centers the struggle against this massive brutal institutionalized bigotry that palestinians experience of course um i, I think uh whether we like it or not palestinians are uh, in a fight and they have to continue fighting against white supremacy and against uh, institutionalized racism. And I think those are the, these are the main forces that continue to promote um, anti-Semitism in addition to all sorts of um, bigotry and racism um, and, um, and hatred against uh, black, brown, people, Muslims, people of color, Jews, and so on and so forth. Um, and there, in the movement for Palestinian rights in the US, there are always conversations, uh, public or private, about how to talk about these issues. And, I, and like I said, I think Palestinians are expected to be the nicest occupied people ever. <laughs> um, but despite that, you know, we, Palestinians uh, in, who are fighting for their rights, they also, many of them subscribe to um, bigger struggles that want to see a better world. And, and I think for me, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm writing this history, because I want to tell my fellow Palestinians that even during the height of the mandate and the height of British and Zionist oppression of Palestinians in the 30s and in the 40s um, and before and after, there were voices that were committed to challenging these evil ideologies on moral um, and principled basis. And I think, I think our opposition will continue to repeat the lines that they repeat, unfortunately. But I think I myself, I, I receive a lot of accusations every day on Twitter, but I disregard them because at the end of the day, we need to look forward. We need to- You mean accusations of anti-Semitism? Of everything, including that. Um, but we need to push forward and continue with telling our story, telling our narrative, and fighting for a better future. And I don't, and I genuinely believe that um, the, the question for uh, Jewish emancipation and the, the fight against anti-Semitism cannot be separated from um, other questions that I'm concerned with. First of all, the question of Palestinian freedom, but also the question of 
freedom and democracy in the broader Arab world, the question of citizenship, the question of human rights and human value and human dignity. And until we figure out these questions, until we resolve them in ways that challenge forces of tyranny and injustice, um, one question of oppression will not be resolved while others are pending. And that's very important to, 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 to remember. Uh, because if in the Arab world today, we want to resolve the you know, plight of Arab Jews who, whether they left uh, by choice or were forced to leave their countries, this cannot be done without addressing the, the quest questions that relate to citizenship and equality and tyranny and despotism and, uh, and democracy and equality in, in the Arab world. And I think the Arab Spring tried to do that, but with the setback that it suffered, um, I think a lot of these questions are more relevant and important now. So it is, it is this broad vision and it's this broad, um, uh, uh, you know, way of thinking that I think need we need to highlight and, and center in the coming years. Yes, I think that's so powerful. I mean, it reminds me of you know Martin Luther King's famous line about being connected in a single garment of destiny. Um, and um, I think one of the things that I find deeply upsetting is to see the way in which anti-Semitism now in let's say the figure of the uh, special envoy against anti-Semitism is not only used to discredit support for Palestinian human rights, but is used now as an to become an apologist for Arab dictatorship. So you go to Deborah Lipstadt goes to the UAE and she goes to Saudi Arabia and she pats them on the head and says, oh, they're good now because now they're saying they're against anti-Semitism, right? As if that should be, as if even if we took that at face value, as if that would, as if that would be enough to excuse their brutal oppression of their own people, right? And as if somehow the the safety and freedom of Jews can be segmented off um, in this in this region or in Palestine, Israel, from the safety and and freedom of of of, of Palestinians and Arabs. Um, uh, Jihad, I'm really grateful for you to taking this time. It's a fascinating history um, that I, I really hope that you are successful in, in kind of bringing to broader attention, because I think that all of us need to understand this, this history much better to have a, a more intellectually serious and also a more ethical conversation about these different forms of bigotry that exist. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Um, the um, uh, and thanks to our listeners for tuning to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMAP website at fmvp.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other rich content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts.